Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Na Oyo Kwate, author of White Burgers, Black Cash, Fast Food from Black Exclusion to Exploitation, published in 2022 by University of Minnesota Press. Dr. Kwate, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. So actually, I just want to say the book is not yet published, actually. It's coming out in April. Oh, sorry. That's all right. Um, So a bit about me. Well, um, I am a psychologist by training, uh, which you wouldn't necessarily know from, you know, the book uh, topic or reading the book. Um, Although I do think you, you, you can... Uh, kind of see it uh, in a few places and what I'm talking about. But yeah, I studied to become a clinical psychologist. And while I was doing my training in grad school, uh, which was in New York City, uh, in large New York City hospitals, I was struck by the amount of chronic illness um, in the patient population that I was seeing. And so, you know, these were hospitals serving uptown Manhattan, um, central Brooklyn, neighborhoods like Bed-Stuy and Bushwick and uh, Harlem. Um, And so, I really, just in terms of what I was seeing in, with regard to I started to become interested in studying uh, social determinants of health more broadly, uh, as opposed to solely uh, treating mental illness. And so, and I was also particularly interested in neighborhoods. And so I moved from, after my um, finishing my grad training, I moved into a postdoc in behavioral medicine. And then I went into uh, my first faculty position uh, at Columbia School of Public Health, where I was doing social science uh, public health research. And so between, you know, living in New York City, growing up in Chicago, I already just in daily life, you can see um, how clearly resources and risks related to health are differentially um, distributed across urban space by race and ethnicity by class. And so um, one of those neighborhood features that I was really interested in for reasons I can't fully explain, but it's just became kind of obsessed with fast food restaurants. And, um, you know, so actually at that time, 
there was a lot of new research on food environments and um, you know connections to obesity um, and the built environment. And so um, I was really interested in kind of if fast food was a risk factor for obesity or for other kinds of chronic illness, what was determining how fast food was located um, in urban space. And so my colleagues and I conducted um, several studies, quantitative and spatial studies um, of fast food in New York City. And so the first one showed that the percentage of black residents was the biggest predictor by far of, where, of fast food density. So the more black residents there were, the more fast food restaurants there were. And income really had little to do with it. And then in another study, we looked at fast food as one of several kinds of retail outlets um, where we were looking at, again, what kind of access did black neighborhoods have to different kinds of retail. And then here we saw that um, black residents had to travel farther um, for all kinds of retail, except for fast food, which was more, which was closer. And this was after accounting for retail demand, after accounting for income, population density, and so on. So it wasn't about demand, which is an automatic assumption that you know, people often think that this, that's why there's so many fast food restaurants, that that was not the case. So we argued that those were patterns, um, th those patterns were evidence of retail redlining. And so you know, those studies and, and some others really led me to sort of question how um, fast food's ubiquity in black neighborhoods came to pass. And then that's what I set out to answer in, in this book. Okay, so then the, the subtitle of the book, which is From Black Exclusion to Exploitation, is a pretty good summary of the, the main argument or through line of the book. So could you flesh that out a little and describe this historical shift in the relationship between fast food and the Black community that got us to some of the stuff that you were talking about from, uh, from your research about you know, where these establishments are located? Yeah, they. Um, so the book traces really um, from the early 1900s, um, really to about you know, into the 2000s. So some of the very earliest restaurants um, that were open at that time in the early 1900s really was um, the Automat in, in New York City. Um, and then um, some of the uh, burger outlets like White Castle and the knockoffs like White Tower and Little Tavern and others. Um, and then it just sort of continues from there. But so I, I call the, the restaurants that were very early, um, the first generation fast food. And those restaurants, um, they really, um, started out in urban centers. So they were right in the city, often on street corners near transit. And they really were attracting primarily working white men that would pass by the restaurant on foot or, you know, again, coming off, you know, the streetcar or what have you. But it was, it was a pedestrian focused center city um, uh, kind of establishment. And so you have the Automat, you um, by, um, which is uh, Horn and Hardart. You have the burger restaurants, you have hot shops in uh, DC which was actually, that one was a little, had a little bit, um, it was a little bit different. It had a wider customer base. So it wasn't just uh, sort of working men, but it was also teens and, and families, but all of these people are white. So everybody working in the restaurant is white, all the customers are white. Um, and, you know, the buildings themselves even were temples to whiteness, you know, in, in the form of White Castle and White Tower and so on. So you have the literal, literal and figurative kind of uh, emphasis on whiteness. And, so first generation fast food entirely shunned uh, black communities from their, from their inception. Uh, and 
um, they they so they you know persist into the 1940s. Well, they continue past the 1940s, but around the 1940s is when you see um, some changes where the city is changing with urban renewal and with and with um, white flight into the suburbs, and so soon you then get the second generation of restaurants uh, in the 1950s, and those restaurants are suburban. So this is where we see McDonald's, Burger King, KFC, and so on. And so they emerge in the suburbs in the early to, um, to mid 1950s. And the focus continues to be on white customers and white space, but you know, again, it's suburban versus uh, the urban uh, beginning. And so, and some of those white spaces that they opened in were sundown towns, which uh, forbade uh, black people from remaining in town after dark. And so, so KFC, for example, uh, began in Corbin, uh, Kentucky, which was a sundown town. And so now the, 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 the customer base shifts from uh, mostly uh, adults and again, mostly working men to uh, children and families. And it, and it becomes something that's more like leisure and fun um, in these suburban locales. It's not just sort of, you know, hum, humble fare for, to fuel uh, the day's work. And so fast food, really at that time constructed the American family to mean white suburban families and black consumers were just incompatible with that logic. And so um, you don't see, um, except for a couple of, a couple of uh, early Burger Kings, you just don't see uh, fast food anywhere near black space. So it's either white center city or white uh, suburbia. And so it just traced a long trajectory over the next um, 50 years basically uh, before it becomes this super saturated um, urban black neighborhood phenomenon. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, so why did that, that shift occur? Why did these, um, these restaurants make that switch from focusing predominantly on white customers to black customers? I mean, it's a long, there are a lot of reasons. Um, there's, there wasn't really just one thing that was happening. Um, and it also, it also took place in different different ways so that, for example, um, you have two, you have black people who, when, when I say that there's exclusion happening, um, there are two ways in which that's true. There's both as cons uh, consumers or customers, but also as franchisees and operators. So, and, and so as, the, as those um, exclusionary processes changed, you know, they were, they were, they were not necessarily one-to-one, -one. like the, the process wasn't happening in a linear fashion for both of those two streams. If, if that makes sense. So, um, so that so, so the second part of the book um, in part two, um, where is uh, which I've called uh, racial turnover, is where you start to see uh, some of the processes by which that shift begins to take place. And um, so you have, for example, black franchisees uh, beginning to be brought into the industry um, in the late 1960s, and some of that is predicated on the seismic changes that are taking place in cities. You have white flat flight going on, you have uh, urban rebellions occurring. And so when those explode in response to entrenched inequalities, um, what the industry does is say, okay, well, we have these white owned um, franchised outlets in black neighborhoods. This is no longer tenable. You know, we can't really have white operators and managers serving a black neighborhood in the context of these rebellions and, and all of this strife. So what we need to do is you know, basically put a black public face um, on, on the outlet. So corporate offices decided really the thing to do was to install black people as um, 
as operators, right? So that they would take over those franchises. And um, a key turning point in that transition was a year long boycott um, by activists in Cleveland. They, they boycotted uh, McDonald's uh, in a, across a few different locations. And they, they, where they sought, the, the activists really sought to control those outlets in, in their own communities. These are very profitable outlets. Um, and, you know, up until that point, who owned them? And so that the Cleveland boycott turned out to be um, kind of a huge uh, factor, um, not just for what was happening in Cleveland, but industry-wide, because everyone was looking at what was happening and how McDonald's was responding and what, you know, what was going to be the sort of long-term uh, impact from that. And so you have also, you have what's happening with individual chains, but then you also have the federal government, um, which was also foundational in um, fast foods racial turnover uh, because it funded black owned franchises um, with small business administration loans and other kinds of programs that were designed to um, increase quote unquote minority uh, enterprise. And so the result was that you end up, you know, these, these loans and other programs um, sort of overemphasize franchising as a possible business structure. Um, and they did that for many reasons, one of which was some of the people that were on the, on the uh, task forces and committees were from themselves from fast food uh, backgrounds. So Al Tunic and others who were, who were leading those efforts. So it's like, if you put fast food people into a business, into the government uh, plan for business, you're gonna end up with fast food as the emphasis and franchising. And so a lot of the, a lot of the proliferation also comes from the federal government. It's not just what um, the individual uh, chains are doing. Um, and then you also get, besides the franchisees, you also then get black franchisors who are uh, primarily uh, celebrities. Um, some, some more figureheads than others as opposed to you know, actually being involved. Um, uh, Brady Keys is one person who um, probably he had the longest running and um, most, uh, I guess, impactful uh, fr franchise. But so you have a lot of black franchisors who are beginning black owned um, brands, uh, which uh, also then, you know, they were also then seeking uh, black franchisees, but they were coming from a perspective of, they're trying to, of course they wanna make money, but they also are interested in community uplift and trying to, uh, you know, bring economic opportunities uh, into the community. So you have a whole bunch of things happening um, in the sixties where um, that really begin um, fueling that, that transition. And then into the seventies, um, you know, you get uh, a lot more uh, attention to no longer just trying to put fast food into black neighborhoods as a way to solve urban crises around rebe urban rebellions and so on. But now the industry is sort of just like, well, we're just, we're really interested in extracting as much money as we can um, and really turning to um, uh, to urban neighborhoods because there had been a lot of changes over time that made the suburbs less amenable. So for example, um, uh, in the, in the uh, early 60s, um, there was a lot of uh, uproar around um, teenage, you know, sort of delinquents, quote unquote, um, and just sort of the fact that teenagers were really unruly. There were all these things happening at the drive-in that uh, communities, suburban communities were upset about. And so you start to see municipalities uh, instituting um, 
you know, new ordinances that either block restaurants or curtail their operations. So it started to become a really different regulatory environment. And so now the central city um, was more appealing than it had been in the past, right? And so um, there, are, there are a bunch of factors that really start fueling that, that transition. Okay. And then as our listeners might have started to guess from some of the examples that you're using in your previous answers, your focus in the book is really on hamburger and fried chicken restaurants. So those are the two main cuisines that you're writing about. So what's special about those cuisines? Why focus on, on them? Kind of what's the, the cultural meaning of those, uh, those two kinds of fast food? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think some of it is that the restaurants, you know, the burger and chicken restaurants are the biggest, the biggest brands. Um, they have, so from a research perspective, it made the most sense to look at them. Um, you know, you can get, you, they have the longest history in terms of what you can get access to in newspapers or other archives. Um, there's the, the advertising might behind them is a lot more. So for example, compared to say, I don't know, um, hot dogs or even um, or like a subway um, uh, in terms of sandwiches or pizzas, uh, Taco Bell also. So it, they just have the, the burger and chicken restaurants just have a lot more available data to 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 make sense of the story. And then also the other the other um, the other food categories are, um, you know, they just they don't reveal that much more, even if I had um, as much access, they don't reveal much more over and above what the burger and chicken restaurants uh, are going to tell us. And also, I think culturally, you know, the burger and fries is like the quintessential American meal. Um, you know, it's like fast food and, and burgers and fries are kind of the closest thing to a national meal that we have. And that that icon, um, you know, is really exported globally. Obviously, these are all um, multinational uh, companies. and so and and they really have a long history in terms of thinking about um you know black black communities and their relationship to it so we think about ella baker uh, talking about it's bigger than a burger james baldwin talks about um which i cite in the book uh, some of his experiences going to a diner and wanting to order a burger and being refused so it's like there the, the hamburger is quotidian and 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 um and sort of ordinary and not special, but also special at the same time because it, it's it's bound up with a lot of sort of you know good old Americana uh, to it. So it, there's there's a lot um, I think that um, is fruitful in, in focusing on those on those categories. And then since you mentioned the the archives there in that answer, that's a good segue into asking you about the research process. So where did you go for the data that you're you're basing this on? Because I'll, I'll say this is such a detailed book. Uh, there's just there's so much in here, and um, you know you're citing to a whole lot of different kinds of sources. So I was wondering if you could kind of give us the overview of how you went about putting this history together and the, the sources and, and archives that you drew on? Yeah, um, well, <laughs> they, they were, it was a lot, it was a lot. Um, it was kind of overwhelming at first trying to think of like, how am I going to, um, you know, get enough information and be able to tell a coherent story and provide the detail that's needed without also sort of getting bogged down in, in a lot of stuff. So. Um, but I, I really tried to draw on as many sources as I possibly could. So um, the book focuses 
I mean, it's a national story, but it focuses in particular on Chicago, DC and New York um, because those cities have, a, well, there are a bunch of things happening there. Like for example, they are centers for black advertising firms, Burrell in Chicago, um, uh, Mingo Jones and Carolyn Jones advertising in New York and others. Um, and they have obviously large black populations. They have similar histories around, um, they're, they're highly segregated. Um, and so those, they, and then also, for example, McDonald's, um, it began in the suburbs of Chicago. And then the second, the, the next end, um, franchise, the second area franchise was in DC's Metro. And then they, that franchise actually started producing other black um, McDonald's, uh, um, you know, executives and others. So there was a lot of interconnection also um, that made those cities in particular a, a place to focus. And so I used archives that were, um, that were either particular to the kinds of um, entities that I was studying. So for example, in terms of advertising and marketing, um, you know, I used uh, Carolyn Jones's papers at uh, the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of American History. Uh, Carolyn Jones was a, a really prominent um, African-American advertiser or advertising agency um, head. And, um, and then Burrell's papers I didn't, I didn't have access to, but I used uh, viewpoint, the viewpoint archives at uh, Vivian Harsh uh, Library in uh, Chicago just the second largest uh, African-American history collection after the Schomburg. So there were places like that where I was able to get um, really great sort of behind the scenes um, kind, of, kind of data like that. Um, some of it was just stuff like um, phone books, old city directories tracing the addresses of where stores were located so that I could study that over time. Where were they locating? How is that changing? Um, the Horn and Hard Art uh, collection uh, there were papers both at the New York Public Library and at uh, the Smithsonian. Um, so sometimes it was, you know, focusing on a particular chain and being able to get access to those uh, particular records. Uh, McDonald's has an archive which they will never let you in. Um, <laughs> so I, I did. I, I went ahead and contacted them to see if that, would, and I and I never heard back, and I was not surprised. I fully expected that, but I thought I would just give it a shot. Um, but there were lots of other kinds of little hidden sources where, um, for example, KFC was uh, bought by uh, Highline, which then was bought by um, RJ Reynolds. And so for that reason, those, those, a lot of documents related to the brand were within the um, tobacco uh, archive at UCSF. Uh, the legacy library, which I think has changed the name some in some way, but um, so there were up, there were a host of places um, where I was able to uh, to study the, these um, these chains and and these cities. Yeah, like I said, that was you did a, a really thorough job, <laughs> and I'm just I'm impressed by the amount of stuff you were able to pull together uh, on that. Um, and then you know, as a, a geographer, I was happy to see lots of maps uh, in mm -hmm. the book. And it sounds like that's kind of how you got into working on this topic in the first place was looking at the, the geographical, the spatial uh, arrangement of, you know, these fast food restaurants and how it relates to the demographics of places. So can you say a little bit about how you're using maps and spatial analysis 
in, in the book, kind of what was the, the process of putting those together? How do those maps help you tell the story that you're telling in the book? Yeah, um, the maps were, um, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, on the so first of all, like I say, just uh, um, looking at old directories or um, old newspaper ads and so on, you, and you can you can see that the address is listed, um, but it doesn't really, um, even if you know the city well, which, and so I know those three cities, um, two of them better than New York and, and Chicago better than DC, but I know DC fairly well. But e even when you read those, you know, and you can see, well, I know what neighborhood this is in, but it doesn't really give you the same, um, you know, picture, obviously, um, until you map them. But when you, when you, when you have that data mapped, um, it's really clear, you can see how the restaurants are laid out in space. And, you know, you can overlay census data and see the percentage of black residents or, or um, other things that you may be interested in. And, you know, so I was able to see, so for example, in one of the early chapters, I have a map of um, White Castle locations uh, in Chicago, and you can see, it's just so plain. This is like in the 1930s. And you can just see how White, White Castle went right around the Black Belt, like just totally skirted that area. Like they, they were above and below, but nowhere inside. And it just, it's very stark and very plain um, when, you're, when you're able to map them that way. And so the, the, spatial, the spatial aspect I think was on the one hand, um, you know, it was like an output where you can see, you know, what, what's happening, what are the restaurants doing? Um, and so I would use the spatial, the spatial data to get a sense of that. But then spatial, a spatial analysis was also useful sort of in driving new questions. So, um, you know, you can see, for example, um, well, with the, with the proliferation of fast food in the, um, in the seventies, and you can see stuff like where, so the oil crises that, that took place, um, fast food became very interested in black neighborhoods because they were, they were worried that with high um, gas prices, you know, uh, customers would be less likely to want to drive um, far distances to, to get fast food. And if fast food is typically on large suburban arterials and so on, they're going to be more, it'll be better served to have them in, to have fast food in communities where people can just walk to them or take public transit or whatever. And so black neighborhoods, um, were, you know, fit that bill because they were in the center city, they were um, easily walkable, they were older, older parts of town, they were not auto-centric and so on. So you can see, um, if, you, if you look, you know, spatially, you can then see too um, the impact of, of how the oil crisis also then fostered new, new chains in that, like on the one hand, they wanted to go into those communities because they knew that that would, that would be an easier place for people to access fast food. But then too, you can see once the, once the gas stations closed, right, when they, if they, gas stations that failed, those corner sites, those corner locations became very, you know, highly prized. Um, and then fast food would move into those. So you could see that, you could see that spatially. And then I was also able to, once I um, saw the locations where they were closing, I was able to get photo um, photos of some of those uh, some of those stores. So, for example, New York City has an amazing um, uh, an amazing resource where they have each each and every tax lot photographed essentially. So they did this in the 1940s and then again in the uh, in the 80s. So you can literally just 
choose an address and get a photo from the 40s and the 80s of that of that location. So I was able to see, you know, um, lots that would change from a gas station to a fast food restaurant or sometimes to other, you know, vacant lot or something else. But again, spatially being able to see, you know, like how the space is actually changing itself, um, you know, in response to these these other kinds of um, shocks that are taking place and, and how fast food is then coming in or going out. Um, so that was also really um, useful. And then also thinking about not just, um, not just sort of where the, uh, where the restaurants are, but also how they sit in space was um, something both of interest to me and also something that came up in, in when I was doing the research, you could see it coming up for folks, you know, historically. So, you know, what are the aesthetics of the restaurants? Um, there's a point in the, in the 1960s where uh, the Mahalia Jackson chain, uh, the, the, one of the head executives talks about how they were determined that they were gonna, they put in all picture windows uh, in the buildings because they were determined not to sort of reproduce the, the typical kind of posture that businesses in black neighborhoods were taking where they would just be, you know, these um, bunker-like kind of uh, buildings with no windows and just ready for riots and stuff like that. And so they, they thought, no, this is an effrontery. We're not, we're not going to um, present ourselves to the people we're, we're trying to serve in that way. Um, you also see the way the buildings sit come up in, in, in the 2000s. So in, in Los Angeles, in the 2008 um, ban against new fast food restaurants, they, it wasn't only, um, they didn't only forbid erecting new outlets, but they also prohibited expanding the floor area and um, inserting drive-through windows because they, they thought not only, they thought not only about, you know, what the restaurant was selling that these might be foods that increase obesity, but also the fact that, well, first of all, the layout, if you have this whole impervious surface, that's going to affect the heat release. If you have drive-through, that's going to affect air pollution. So there are other kinds of health concerns. And then again, there's, there are aesthetic concerns about what, what this neighborhood looks like as a result of um, how these fast food restaurants um, operate. And so the ordinance also required landscaping with plants. So there are a lot of concerns that, you know, come up that, that are about space either you know how the lo the restaurants are located, or or what they're what what kind of space they're taking up, and how they look in that space. Yeah, it's just fascinating how many different things get pulled together around something as kind of everyday and ordinary as a fast food restaurant. Right. So we've talked a bit about what the you know the corporations running these restaurants uh, were doing. And so then I wanted to hear a little bit about some of the responses from within Black communities to these business practices, you know, across this um, this time period that you're talking about. Yeah, well, so there are varying there are varying responses. I think um, one of the themes that's going to be evident to readers is that, um, and which uh, you know I think is an important sort of corrective is that there's there's never been um, any kind of like huge demand for fast food um, that I can see in, in black communities. So again, when you see the kinds of data that we, we found in our initial papers, um, that the, the quantitative studies that I was talking about earlier, where you see fast food so densely populated in black neighborhoods, the assumption is either, well, there are two assumptions. One is that fast food is just um, 
you know, it's because it's uh, pitched to a lower income consumer. It's a low price point product. And so it, it's, it's, it's really explained by the fact that um, these neighborhoods are lower in income. But we found that income was not driving that relationship. And we also found that if you look at, for example, um, predominantly black neighborhoods that are high income, their exposure was basically the same as those that are low income. So it was not about income. And then, but so people assume either it's income or it's demand. And as I say, in the quantitative study, we show that it wasn't demand. And then when you, when I look, when I, in researching this book, it also became very clear that demand was never, that was just never a thing. Um, early in, in the, in the first generation, around the first generation restaurants, when those neighborhoods were totally excluded, right? And as I say, White Castle going right around them and so on. There just wasn't any evidence where black neighborhoods were like, bring us the fast food, we won't, you know, it just, there was, there was not um, any, uh, you know, obsessive uh, kind of, um, or, or, you know, uh, overly enthusiastic um, response to, to wanting fast food in those communities. If anything, at that time, um, black folks were engaging in what um, some scholars have called respectable eating. Uh, they were very concerned about what they ate, how that looked, um, trying to, you know, trying to um, put their best foot forward as it were socially. Um, when later in, in, in the timeline, um, there were consistently uh, protests, if anything, against uh, bringing fast food in. Um, you know, the 2008 ban is sort of the, the, the end of that spectrum, but all throughout, um, continually, you would see communities, uh, black communities, um, residents, activists, who were protesting um, the entree of more and more restaurants. Um, unfortunately, they weren't necessarily able to prevent them from, from entering, but there was continually protest to it. So obviously that's not a case of demand. And then the, 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 the places where you do see agitation for fast food was not um, because people were so determined to eat it, but it was really because they were working on that as, as a, um, for the financial gain. So for example, in the 1980s, um, uh, Operation Push, um, this, I talk about this in uh, part three of the book. So there was a lot of black activism um, in op um, with Operation Push where they were interested in um, signing what they called racial covenants with fast food industries to increase black owned franchising opportunities and also um, patronage, patronage of black suppliers. So meaning, you know, they wanted say, um, you know, Burger King to buy its napkins from a, a black owned, you know, napkin factory, whatever, to use an example. But so, so the, the interest in fast food was really from the economic perspective and trying to make sure that uh, black entrepreneurs had access to the same kinds of opportunities that their white counterparts did. So again, you know, and even that, that's from a relatively, you know, elite kind of group of folks, but it just over, over this entire timeline, I really didn't see um, any evidence that black communities were relating to fast food in a way that would suggest um, that, you know, the densities we see are, are lo an, a logical outgrowth um, of, that, of that community's, you know, sentiments for it. Okay. So then if the, the current situation is not a good one, right? It's exploitative, there's uh, bad health outcomes from it and so forth. What do you see as the pathway to change? How, how can this, this situation be improved or, or rectified? You know, it's interesting because I wonder if some of it is rectifying on its own in as much as, um, well, 
in as much as, as, as neighborhoods change, you know, will fast food still be um, as present? It, that is a question which, you know, I, 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 ha I haven't answered in this book, but I do wonder um, whether that's gonna be the case. Um, gentrification sort of makes fast food into an anachronism um, unless it is, you know, what you could call the third generation of fast food, which is sort of the remade version of the original roadside, like uh, Shake Shack, which sort of re-envisions it and it's pricier and ostensibly with better quality. But for the most part, um, you know, that is something I think that bears watching is what's going to happen um, as neighborhoods gentrify and, you know, what, what's going to happen with what the large chains do and which is may or may not be the same as um, some of the smaller, uh, the smaller chains like the Kansas fried chickens and the Kennedy fried chickens and so on that are, that are uh, prevalent in New York City. But I do think that, you know, the, um, the LA ban um, is instructive in, um, in thinking about what kinds of uh, tactics communities can employ. Um, now the LA ban um, was, was sort of uh, talked about in public discourse around, it's, it focused solely on the um, on, on obesity, which was never the sole goal of that, of that ban. It was never that, oh, we're going to ban fast food and therefore we're gonna see obesity drop. Um, because some researchers then looked at whether obesity rates fell and it, it, it didn't um, in some in the few years after the ban was enacted, but that was never the sole point. The point was there, it's an, there's an oversaturation and we just wanna prevent additional restaurants from coming in and we also, in, in doing so, we hope that that will uh, open up the kinds of retail opportunities that exist more broadly. Um, but what that, you know, what that um, sort of requires is that there isn't continued retail redlining um, so that, you know, even if you prevent more fast food from coming in, that doesn't necessarily mean a, a, a wide spectrum of, of other kinds of retail uses are going to come into the neighborhood. And that's what, that's basically what ended up happening. So I think there are a lot of, you know, the, the tensions around what kinds of things are operating, what kinds of stores are there. Um, it, it's, it's never gonna be just about fast food. There's still, there's still all the broader inequalities and structural factors that make things more or less likely to occur. And if you still have retail redlining going on, you still have um, disinvestment from uh, the part of, from either the city or from private actors, you know, you can still have retail quarters that lay fallow, vacant lots that are unused. Um, so it's not, you know, I think a focus on fast food by itself um, isn't going to address all those things, you know, and they're not gonna magically resolve themselves around fast food. So it's, it's I think, a complicated uh, question. Okay, well, so there's so much more in the book. We could talk about this all day, but, you know, we wanna, keep a, a reasonable podcast and, and leave people with something to, to pick up the book and learn more about. So before we wrap up, I always like to give you an opportunity to give a, a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing the book. Oh boy. Um, I, wow. My acknowledgements um, section is uh, pretty lengthy <laughs> and I would hesitate to try to pluck um, somebody out of, from that list because I already forgot people in the in the book itself. So, but there are many there are many um, there are many people and um, both professionally and personally who who made it possible. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I want to single any one person out. Okay. Uh, 
And then as our traditional final question, what are you working on next? Um, I'm actually um, underway on a new book project, which is looking at corner liquor stores uh, in black neighborhoods. And, um, you know, it's an interesting question because so the, so unlike fast food, which where the question was, well, what happened? Why did it go from uh, a solely white, you know, whites only kind of uh, exclusionary uh, uh, business to becoming uh, disproportionately dense in black neighborhoods? What, you know, what happened there? Liquor stores were never scarce. So that's not the question. The question isn't what, what changed or why have they become so prominent, but really over their long um, tenure in black neighborhoods, what has been the impact and um, in black life broadly. So in public health, um, you know, there are a lot of studies where they look at, actually not even a lot, they're a fair number, but there are a fair number of studies that look, that have documented that, black, that liquor stores are uh, like fast food, disproportionately dense in black neighborhoods. And it's, again, it's not due to income and these other things, but um, the research either stops there or it links to um, important um, health outcomes. So either alcohol consumption or um, some others. But for me, uh, an another question that we need to ask is sort of what, you know, what else is at stake? Again, the, the health impact is important. Uh, connections to, to violent crime, uh, which is one thing that's been looked at as well, is also important. But I, I'm, I'm interested in trying to understand what else is at stake how else have liquor stores sort of infiltrated themselves into black life uh, in, in American cities? And you know, how should we think, be thinking about where they fit in uh, into a racialized social system? So that's, that's what I'm working on now. Okay, well, that sounds excellent. And if that turns into another book, we'd love to have you back on to talk about it. Thanks, that would be great. Okay, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This has been a conversation with Na Oyo Kwate author of White Burgers, Black Cash, Fast Food from Black Exclusion to Exploitation, published in 2023 by University of Minnesota Press.